As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello, welcome to the land of the free and the home of the brave. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Hi, happy St. Patrick's Day. The luck of the Irish collided with the surge of a virus. You all have made the conscious choice to be here. On this week's episode of Open Record, we look back at the day the COVID-19 pandemic got real. Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hey, Brian. Hey, Amanda. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, October 26th for release on Thursday, October 28th. And we're doing this early because, Amanda, you will not be in Wisconsin for the rest of this week. And the reason behind that is a very exciting one for our Open Record team. Where are you going and why? (laughs) I am going to New York City because our podcast, Open Record, won a national Edward R. Murrow Award. And this is a big deal in the television journalism circles. Basically, in different categories, we all submit our best stuff and the regional winners come out and then the winners of each region, they all compete for national awards and a a compilation of open record episodes from when we started recording five days a week, Monday through Friday during the pandemic. We submitted that. It won a regional award. We were really excited because that alone is a big honor. And then we found out we won a a National Murrow Award. So I'll be going to New York to accept on behalf of our entire hardworking team. It's exciting stuff. Um, But I, I think it's a testament to this tool that we have where we can give our our viewers and our listeners, a, a look behind the scenes of of what we do, why we make the decisions we make, bring even more transparency to our journalism, and take a deep dive into issues that are important to people. So you'll be going to New York to receive the award on behalf of the the Open Record team, but that entry that we submitted, you mentioned it was a compilation, and the first entry on that compilation is the one you're going to hear again in a few minutes, an encore presentation. But this one, I think, was such an interesting selection because it goes back literally to the first day when we really, when I say, we said in the the intro, when the pandemic got real, this was when the impact of the restrictions and things really kicked in. And we all had to suddenly assess, what does this mean for our lives? What can and can't we do? Who's willing to break the rules and who isn't? Um, And and it all happened very quickly. It did. So I remember St. Patrick's Day. We knew we were probably going to get sent home. We knew that the next day we, we wouldn't come back to the office, but we thought it was going to be for two weeks. And I remember we, we had a conversation with our executive producer, Sarah Smith, and we said, okay, what do we do with the podcast at this point? Because we were recording in person. We had a little like makeshift podcast studio. At the station. At the station. 
And we would all be sitting very close to each other in person, which now is funny to think about because I, I sitting in that proximity unmasked, I, I don't know that that's happened in, in any work situation since then. And we we thought about pausing our podcast recordings because, again, we thought it was only going to be for two weeks. But then as we were talking about just the onslaught of news, kind of said, maybe we should be doing this more. Maybe every day, because we were doing stories every day to kind of explain to people what was happening and what context they needed. And back then, we were recording podcast episodes pretty far ahead of time because we were talking about topics that weren't really going to change. And with the pandemic, we, we couldn't sit on an episode for a week. Everything would have changed by then. So that's when we said, what if we st- ramp up the recording? And what if we start with today? And that took us to the story you were working on, Brian. That was trying to figure out what all these new restrictions meant, and it all happened very quickly. You may recall that uh, at first there were limitations on large public gatherings of 250 people or more, and then it was, I think, maybe 50, and then all of a sudden it was 10, and then at the very same time there were suddenly restrictions or closures ordered of bars and restaurants unless they were doing curbside service. So all of that happened literally in a matter of hours. And this is also at the very same time we had just determined we were taking our podcast remote. And all of that came together for our first pandemic era episode, uh, which we're going to play for you again here today. I'm sorry, I'm eating beef jerky as we wait in the car. <laughs> we're uh, outside Saloon on Calhoun in Brookfield. I really need to finish this. Hang on. <laughs> we can wait until you finish your beef jerky. Okay. We're outside Saloon on Calhoun, Capitol and Calhoun Drive in Brookfield, and uh, we are waiting to see how many people show up for a St. Patrick's Day party that's supposed to be starting any time now. And backing up, so usually people showing up on St. Patrick's Day, probably not a news story, might be no, some no. cute video. I, in fact, there'd What's... be a lot more people here by now, I think, on a typical St. Patrick's Day. A little more day drinking. Uh, it, it, although, I mean, at bars all over the city, there would be revelry and shoulder-to-shoulder people, so... It's unusual to find, uh, you know, a bar that's... Well, it certainly wouldn't be a story that there were, you know, 20 people at a bar. But it's a story now with everything going on with coronavirus and especially with the latest direction coming from Governor Evers. So as of time of recording, you're not supposed to be in a mass gathering of 10 people, more yeah, than and, 10 and, people. And think about that. 10 people at a bar in Wisconsin is hardly considered a mass gathering, right? <laughs> right. I mean, that's like, that's Tuesday. Um, but <laughs> It is Tuesday. And it is Tuesday. But that's not even a St. Patrick's Tuesday. That's any day. But now, anything with 10 or more people. And th- that's the thing. This is changing minute by minute. Who knows what it'll be by the time right. this thing airs. Well, and the thing is, he specifically said that the specific direction is if you are a restaurant or bar, it is no dine-in. It, it is to go only. I don't know if that counts drinking? for drinking in. Right, We're about to find out. Hello, welcome to the land of the free and the home of the brave. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. Trying to stay in a group of less than 10 and six feet apart from each other. Not being facetious. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is a special edition of Open Record. 
Typically, it's a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Fox 6 investigative reports, but we're changing things up a little bit. We're bringing you the latest on our coverage of COVID-19, the coronavirus issue here in Wisconsin. We'll be bringing you more frequent episodes over the next few weeks. And today we are looking into the ever-changing orders that are limiting group sizes, limiting gatherings, limiting what restaurants and bars specifically can do. And we're looking at some places that are maybe pushing the limits of that. Do the governor's orders have teeth? Is there any way to enforce this? And that's what we're digging into today. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire. I'm here with Brian Polson. Hey, Amanda. It's our first social distancing podcast. <laughs> it is. We are recording this remotely in different buildings. Hopefully this works. Uh, we've had to uh, brush off some of the dust on some of the technology we have sitting in the Fox 6 studios, but so far so good. So Brian, we're launching into a, a really interesting night that you had. You all have made the conscious choice to be here. You understand what's at risk. So Brian, what? how did you start looking into this situation? Well, really, we didn't know when we started first looking at this that the governor was going to order bars and restaurants to close completely other than uh, curbside or carryout, takeout service. Um, but we did know that there was already a concern about social distancing and large public gatherings. And actually, when we first set out to do something, uh, we knew St. Patrick's Day was coming. Uh, this was Monday. We were discussing what to do when all these people are going out to the bars and standing shoulder to shoulder historically, um, at just as the CDC is saying you shouldn't be close together and you shouldn't be in large public uh, or in, in large gatherings in public spaces. So we wanted to know who is going to be shutting down their holiday parties, their, well, their St. Patrick's Day parties, and, and who's going on with the show. And we were getting tips coming in saying, hey, this place or that place is advertising that they're still going to go on with their big uh, party. And the first place I was focusing on was actually an Irish pub in Menominee Falls that had had a tent party on Saturday night, even after all of these concerns were being raised. At that time, the CDC's guidelines were no social gatherings larger than 250 people. And according to the owner of A.J. O'Brady's Irish pub, they were sticking to that 250 limit and monitoring the situation. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know if they were really counting, if they were watching um, sure. But they did have a tent. They had a show. Uh, things are changing, as we know, with the situation by the day, even by the hour. And by the time we got to Monday, it was down to 50. And before long, on Tuesday, uh, things changed very quickly again as the governor issued new orders um, uh, advising people not to be in gatherings larger than 10 and, uh, and ordering bars and restaurants to close as of 5 p.m. Tuesday afternoon. At that so point... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so to see what was going on here, you and I went essentially undercover. I That's probably a, a little over generous term for it at Saloon on Calhoun. And uh, it was even just from the second we walked in, it was it was an interesting time. Well, so even taking a step back for a moment, why do we end up at Saloon on Calhoun specifically? And it's in part because the owner was proclaiming proudly on Facebook that they were planning to stay open. They weren't going to, these are his words, were not going to give in to fear. And so it seemed as though they planned to push forward regardless of what orders were handed down. So when things changed on Tuesday, uh, 
um, early in the day and the governor issued the more restrictive orders, the first question I asked you was, do you think they're still going to go through with this? So when we arrived at around four o'clock, which is when they were scheduled to open, uh, at least according to Facebook, it, you know, we didn't know what we were going to find. I thought they might say, okay, this is too much now. We, we, we need to do what everybody else is doing. We need to shut down. Instead, we found they were not only open, uh, when we went to walk in the door, the owner was right there. And I, I remember your reaction to the first thing he said, uh, which was essentially, don't gather in groups of 10 uh, or more than 10 <laughs> in different parts of the building. Yeah, I said that's an interesting unusual. interpretation um, because I think it's safe to say that that is not what the governor nor the CDC meant when they said to limit gatherings to groups of 10 or less. Well, and here's the thing. I think nobody really knows what any of this means necessarily, except that we're trying to keep people away from each other so that the community spread doesn't get worse. But if you're a business owner who's trying to push the limits and you go, well, the order is no large public gatherings of more than 10. Well, if you're not gathering in an area that's more than 10, maybe I'm okay. So he's playing the letter of the order, so to speak, and trying to push it. Meanwhile, there's sort of the intent, and the intent is let's keep people away from each other so we don't have unintentional community spread. And so as we're there, I mean, they were, the people who were there, the owner, the wait staff, they were all pretty proud, it seemed of the fact that they were open. We're gonna keep this thing going. Multiple times we had people saying, they're gonna to have to take me out of here in handcuffs. The first person that leaves is me in handcuffs. We think you should have the freedom to decide where you wanna go. We're trying to keep things open uh, for the employees here, but also for you. You all have made a conscious choice to be here. You understand what's at risk? I have to say from my standpoint, it's probably the worst uh, I've ever been in any undercover situation because I could just feel myself flinching whenever I saw people hugging or touching each other. It was a very uncomfortable situation because from the journalist perspective, we've been telling people over and over to stay inside, to socially distance themselves. And here we are around people who are doing the exact opposite. Well, we are living in a very uncertain time and in a very unusual time in history in that we've all heard about pandemics before and there have been scares before, but nothing that's really come here to, to our shores and, 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 uh, and touched us so closely in this way where we're actually having to change how we live. And I think it's, it's understandable to see that there are business owners and there are employees and, and workers who are scared to death right now. They're gonna lose their livelihoods. Um, but then when you add in, sometimes there's, you, you can add, you know, we're, we're in a world where everything is political now, right? Everything is divisive. And if you start to view this as, well, I don't like our governor or I don't like this particular politician. And so therefore I'm going to proudly defy their order. Maybe that plays a part in some of this. Um, I think there was probably some element of we're fighting for ourselves. We're fighting for our jobs. So we're going to proudly defy this. But all of that is happening at a time when, while you might understand the spirit of it, in the end, the result could be you worsen a serious public health crisis. And so... Well, the result might be your business is affected anyway, but now more people are sick or God forbid more people die. And that's the, that's the thing that business owners are struggling with right now. So I had to duck out after we were there 
for about an hour, but you stuck around. So what happened after I left? Well, when we first got there, before you had even left, as you know, we sat down and one of the first things I, I wondered was, are, are they still serving food here? Because restaurants have been ordered to stop serving food. Now, granted, that, that order took effect officially at 5 p.m., but most restaurants and bars were already complying. And I believe, in fact, we had just come from A.J. O'Brady's in Menominee Falls, where I interviewed owner Bruce Russell. He said they thought they could keep going until 5 and local police told him there, it's done now. Get everybody out. Um, but here we were in Brookfield where police apparently hadn't made such a call. No one had uh, had said anything in spite of the public proclamations on Facebook. They intended to stay open. Um, and so we ordered food and they served food. Um, so that was kind of step one. But we are going to party. They were serving drinks. They were, people were hugging. They were gathering in small groups and close contact. And so we were witnessing all of this. They had a, a live act playing on stage, uh, a one-man kind of Irish band um, who had been canceled from another event the night before and was picked up as a last-minute booking by Saloon on Calhoun. Right as 5 p.m. hit, he's packing up all of his things. And we wondered, well, are they going to shut down now that it's 5 p.m.? Maybe they were pushing it up until the governor's limit, and now they're going to close. And I asked the, uh, the, 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 the musician who was packing up, you know, why, why are you doing it? And he said, well, my set is done. His set was listed as starting at 4.30. It was 5. So I thought, okay, sounds like they're closing down. But right at that same time, and you were still there for this, right at that same time, that's when this mm -hmm. uh, remarkable thing happened that we happened to catch on video and was, of course, aired in our broadcast on Tuesday night. Um, has gotten a lot of attention. That's when the owner got on a microphone and proudly announced that it was after 5 p.m. and that everyone in the bar had now joined him and his staff as rebels. It's after 5 o'clock, so as of right now, you are all officially rebels like us. And everybody cheered. And there was a sense at that point of, we know we're defying the order of the governor, we're proud to be doing it, and no one's going to stop us. It was a surreal moment. And, uh, and we had it on, on video. They, at that point, still didn't know that we were anything other than customers who were joining them in their rebellion. Um, <laughs> but the question was then, how long is this going to go on? And are they going to party all night? So you had to go, and I stuck around for a while, and I heard a, an announcement about something closing down at 7, and I thought, okay, police have gotten the word. They're, they're shutting down now. So I went to the bartender and asked, are you guys closing at 7? And she said, oh, no. She repeated the, the earlier comments that we're not shutting down until somebody takes me out of here in handcuffs. And I said, well, what was the 7 p.m. announcement? And she said, no, no, we're closing the kitchen at 7. So they had acknowledged and admit they were serving food two hours past the governor's order at this point, uh, in addition to drinks. And by the time I walked out of the building at about 6, 6.30, there were still about 25, 30 people inside. Now, granted, this is not your typical St. Patrick's Day party where you're going to have shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder people and, and it's Saloon on Calhoun known to be sure. a, 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 you know, a top-notch music bar. Um, you would probably have a lot of people there on St. Patrick's Day. Um, so this was a small crowd by typical standards, but it was certainly well in excess of the governor's limit of 10 people in a public space, and the bar was supposed to be closed um, other than serving takeout food. So I left at 6, and I met up with uh, Fox 6 photographer Justin Du Bois, and we, uh, at this time, 
revealed ourselves as journalists for Fox 6 News, and the owner was standing outside smoking a cigarette, and I approached him. What was his reaction? Well, as soon as... There were, there were several staff members outside, and as soon as they realized who we were, they tensed up, immediately went to Dave Daler, the owner, and said, Dave, 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 look, and tried to get him inside. He was far away from the front door, and I think he knew it... It doesn't look much better if I turn and run. And frankly, he'd been pretty proud of what they were doing up to that point, or at least he'd projected he a pride in it. He wasn't hiding it. He wasn't hiding it. So I think, you know, he felt maybe this is the time to, to take a stand and say what I believe. And I told him that. I said, look, here's your opportunity. If you believe what you're doing is right, if you believe defying the governor's order is the right thing to do, tell people why. You represent a voice. And while many people might find it extremely distasteful, it's a voice that's out there. Um, there, he's not the only one who feels this way. He might have been one of the only ones who was willing to risk his business license or his liquor license over it, but he said he was sticking his neck out and taking a stand, and he stood and he answered questions for a good 10-15 minutes. And what reason did he give for being a rebel, Well, as he put it? First and foremost, he's, it's, it's hard to pin down, and I don't want to speak for him, but what he said was on the one hand... There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of fear. And sometimes the best thing to deal with fear is to be able to go out and keep life normal. And that this is, for most people, little more than a cough. And that we're going to kill an entire industry, as he put it, over a cough. On the other hand, he would repeatedly acknowledge, I know this is serious and people can die and people are going to die. However, the people who come here, they know if they are uh, at risk themselves or if they have loved ones at home who are at risk and they can make that choice for themselves. We want to be here for them to give them that opportunity and freedom. He used the word freedom a lot. I'm fighting for this industry. I'm fighting for freedom. They, want to, they need to be free to do what you know, freedom allows, and that is to come here and enjoy some live music and, and a good time. So on the one hand, he said it was hype and fear. On the other hand, he said, yeah, it's real and people are going to die, but people should have the right to make that choice of, of what risk they're willing to accept. Um, that seemed to be the overarching message throughout his comments. Which seems to be a conflicting message. In some ways, yes. Although, I mean, I think if you asked him, his, his thought seems to be, if people know they're safe and the people around them are not at risk of anything serious because they're not elderly or vulnerable in some way, immunocompromised, that they are... Uh, making the choice themselves to take that calculated risk. What it So, so I, I don't know that that's necessarily in conflict. Um, I think what it misses, at least from what we're hearing from public health experts, from the CDC and from others, is that it's not necessarily that you're just risking yourself and your own family. If you continue right. community contact, you continue a spread that then furthers how quickly this thing exponentially spreads to others. If every bar just says forget it, we're going to stay open, the community spread is much worse, and then vulnerable people do become exposed. Um, I think really what I took away from it is it didn't seem like he believes this is as serious as the health experts are telling us it is. And I think that's still a pervasive issue for many people. This still seems like it's an overreaction to some. And I think we're What's finding out... Belief... What's his belief that it's an overreaction based on? Well, that I don't know, and I can't speak to that. I did ask him, you know, what for you would convince you that this was serious enough to close? 
And his response to that was simply that the governor didn't give enough time, that the order was, you know, there was about a two-hour window to respond. Again, that didn't match up to me with the proclamation that we're going to stay open until someone shuts us down and I walk out of here in handcuffs. Because that didn't sound like, well, we just didn't have enough notice. That sounded like we don't like the order and we're going to defy it until someone says otherwise. Um, he, he did have a lot to say about, and I think this this is another concern that's out there. It's a very real concern, and I think this is a, a difficult one to address. The industry, the restaurant and bar industry, is specifically being singled out because that's where people go. And they, but but his concern was this industry, where's the help coming from when they have to shut down, when they don't have money coming in, all the people who work in the service industry, the bar and restaurant industry, what's going to happen to them? I think there are great fears that unemployment is going to rise substantially. We just heard that the Treasury Secretary, the leaked uh, conversation that uh, Bloomberg News released overnight, that the Treasury Secretary told the Trump administration, we could be looking at 20% unemployment without the trillion dollar stimulus they're discussing. So there are real fears of massive unemployment when we're now used to sub 4% unemployment. So those are real fears. But but the question is, you know, is it worth risking people's lives um, to try to push past these orders? So you talk to the owner. What happens after that? We talked to the owner uh, at about 6.30 maybe. I, I, I can't recall the exact time. Uh, maybe 7 o'clock. And then we went to start putting together our stories for the 9 o'clock news and 10 o'clock news. And we were in the parking lot. Um, the, the parking lot outside Saloon on Calhoun is a very large parking lot. It, it, there's a, a, a giant U.S. bank building there that's a very long building. So we were far away from the building. We didn't want to... It was somewhat of an uncomfortable situation. They weren't certainly happy they were about to be featured on the news for this. Um, but we were still in sight of the building. And you could see the lights were all on. The open sign was still there. It looked like the bar was still operating. The same number of cars roughly were in the parking lot for a while. Uh, and then the 9 o'clock news came, and we reported this story. Within probably about 15 minutes, an SUV pulled up in front of the business. And I couldn't tell from the distance we were at if that was, in fact, a squad car or not. Um, but it turned out later I saw it much closer as it was passing by us. And it was indeed an unmarked squad car with a laptop computer in the passenger seat facing the driver's seat. Um, right around that same time, all the lights on the building went off. The open sign went off, the green neon lights that they have that uh, surround the perimeter of the windows went off, and it looked like the bar shut down. I have uh, put in calls to the Brookfield Police Department to ask if they ordered them shut down, if they ticketed them, if they fined them. As of the time of this recording, I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is we aired our story at 9, a police squad car, an unmarked car showed up a short time later, and then the business shut down. Haven't heard anything more since then. That leads me to the question, does the governor's order have teeth? So it's one thing to say restaurants and bars can only be dine out. Uh, we need to limit gatherings to groups of 10 or less. But is it actually being enforced? Well, I think that's still an unsettled question in some ways. Although, as the governor said in his news conference on, on Monday, or, or perhaps it was Sunday, I don't know when this, it, the, the news conference I'm referring to was, but 
he had said, you know, they, they trust people to do the right thing. They're doing, or maybe it was his legal counsel. Someone in that news conference had said, we're trusting people to do the right thing. And by and large, most businesses, most individuals are following the recommendations and the orders that are coming down because I think most people know this is serious and they want to do what they can to limit the time frame. I think that's the biggest fear that almost everyone has is how long is this going to go on? If someone said we need to shut down for two days and this will be over, I think it'd be a snap. But when you say this could go on for months and we don't know how many months, uh, it becomes a lot less certain. The economic damage is very real. So I think most people are doing it voluntarily. The question is, for those who don't comply, is there a hammer? Is there a mechanism for enforcement? And it looked like, honestly, our, our, uh, our showing up and publicizing what was happening was a bigger hammer than the government had at least planned to use. Um, well, because publicity under, in, a public health, in a public health emergency, the governor does have certain powers and theoretically he could enforce this through, I suppose, the National Guard, but you had reached out to the governor's office specifically about this. And I thought it was interesting that they wouldn't really give you a direct answer on whether there was a, an enforcement mechanism for no. this on the state level. That's right, because the, the, the question that I asked was, uh, uh, well, I asked a number of questions, but they were related to the main point, which was, first of all, uh, you know, what are the fines or potential punishments for violating these orders? And then, and two, how can you enforce them? Who enforces them? Is it the Department of Justice? Is it local police and sheriff's departments? Is it the National Guard, the State Patrol? Who does that? Who has the responsibility and, and the authority? And then again, thirdly, do you actually plan on exercising those powers? So what are the penalties who enforces them, and, and, and are you going to do it? And they didn't really answer any of those. They did cite the state statute under which their authority falls. Um, and beyond that said, we refer you to the Department of Justice. So I called the Wisconsin Department of Justice, and they referred me to a communications person within the department. They, were, they forwarded me to that number, and I got voicemail. I left a very descriptive voicemail of why I was calling and my deadline, uh, and I didn't get any response. And I still, at the time of this recording, have received no response from the Department of Justice. So it doesn't appear there is any particular eagerness to talk about the enforcement mechanisms. It appears at this point they're banking on voluntary compliance. And in some cases, you know, a visit from the local police department seems to do the trick for those who are trying to push the limits. Well, and we had a conversation at length about how we cover this story, right? So we don't want to look like we are glorifying businesses who are defying the governor's orders or businesses who are defying advice from our public health leaders and medical professionals. At the same time, we need to show people what's happening. So there was a lot of back and forth about how we do this and how we tell this story. Well, I, I think really this is one of those times where, and, and, and quite frankly, this is how journalism should always work, there are many viewpoints on, on what's the right thing to do right now and very, very strong and passionate viewpoints. Our job is to document. Our job is to show what's happening and why it's happening. And what we know is, this is what we know for sure as of you know uh, the time of this recording, and this is what happened on St. Patrick's Day. Most bars and restaurants shut down. 
St. Patrick's Day parties uh, didn't happen. For the most part, uh, and again, this is not absolute, but for the most part, Irish pubs were empty on St. Patrick's Day. That's a stunning uh, thing to think about. Um, and it's an example of what we're going through right now. At the same time, there were some places that pushed the limits, and Saloon on Calhoun was one of them. And they weren't hiding it. They put it out on Facebook, out on social media, and said, we're doing this because we don't want to give in to fear. So we went there to see, are they really going to go through with this? And sure enough, they did. We documented it. We talked to the owner for his point of view. We put it on television. Police responded. Um, and a lot of other people are responding. Our Facebook page, our Fox 6 uh, News Milwaukee Facebook page, has been inundated with comments. This story has been shared hundreds of times. And there are some real divergent viewpoints on there. But that's because I think this is sort of a flashpoint. This is that, uh, that, that push and pull between what we need to do in a public health emergency. What is the government doing to protect us and how far can the government go? What rights do we have as citizens, as business owners, um, to control our own destinies? And is that okay when you're putting people's health at risk? So I, our job really is to get this information out there, let the public decide. And, and this was one of those cases where I just wanted to go and see, are they really going to do this? And sure enough, they did. Okay, so that was our episode entitled COVID-19 Rebels. And Amanda, looking back, what I still find so remarkable now is that was about a year and a half ago, a little more than a year and a half. And I checked today, since then we have published more than 150 episodes of Open Record. That was our 40th episode, by the way. That was number 40 in the history of the podcast. We have since published another 150. So, the vast majority of the time we've been doing this podcast, it's been during the pandemic, uh, which I do think makes that entry uh, or that that uh, inclusion in the entry uh, an appropriate one. It, it is. And that entry, I think it was a really well-rounded entry because we started with this episode that really kicked off where we were in that moment. And then we went into an episode where we did interviews with uh, healthcare workers, and they spoke to us candidly if we agreed to not share identifying information. But they described in sometimes heartbreaking ways what their jobs were like and what their fears were and what resources they were or weren't getting from their employers. And that was really the first look into, I mean, something that I think we're all really familiar with now. And then we went from that into uh, an example of how we really can use this medium to peel back the layers on an issue. There was an episode about unemployment and the ins and outs of the unemployment system. And at that point, that was several months into the pandemic. And that was something that uh, we had been reporting on for several weeks, but you know just as well as I do, Brian, you can report on something for weeks and weeks and weeks. Sometimes you just need to sit there and put everything together piece by piece and spell it out. And that's what we did in that episode of unemployment. And I feel like when we take this medium and really uh, allow it to let us take us to the places where we can go to the edges of our reporting, it really can connect us with 
a lot of these issues that we're so buried in that we don't always take a step back and look at, okay, this is the overall impact and these are the big things people need to know. So that's one thing I'm really proud of with our award-winning entry is I feel like it showcases the, the ways in which uh, this reporting has an impact and how we can take people to that deeper level that you don't always get in a minute and a half story. Well, don't get me wrong. You know, winning awards is great, and this is a big one, and so I'm very proud of it and grateful for it. But what I love about this podcast, and I've said it so many times on here, is when we do investigations, we often spend weeks or months laboring over a topic, learning, researching, digging, trying to get people to talk to us. Just before we recorded this one, you and I were talking about a story that I'm working on right now where I'm really struggling with some pieces. We know there's important stuff there, but it's honing in on what that story is going to be. And in the end, it's presented in maybe four or five minutes of television. And now in the digital age, at least that four or five minutes of television lives on on our website where you can share it through social media and other things. So it has a little more life than it used to. But the podcast gives us the ability to really talk about all that stuff you can't fit in four or five minutes. Because in a lot of these cases, I know you you and I could sit and talk about them for hours. We could talk about the contents of these stories, the roadblocks we ran into, why we did things the way we did, the things we wish we could have done better. We could do that ad nauseum, and this really gives us a venue to give people, sort of peel back the onion a little bit and show them what went into to putting together an investigation. That's right, because I do think it's important for, for everyone to know what's gone into the story that they're seeing, because that's how you're evaluating uh, what you're going to do with the information, right, and how it makes you feel and how it's going to influence potentially how you think about something or any decisions you make about something. You need to be able to evaluate what went into it. And so when we have that transparency, it helps build that trust. And that's one thing I'm really grateful for with this podcast. And I think that's one thing that was really shining when we were doing those daily recordings Monday through Friday. It was a lot of work. I, I know we we have fun with the, the chit-chat on this episode, and it's filled with people who like to talk, and that's great. That's what makes the podcast work. But putting each episode together is, is quite a bit of work from um, just the concept to the flow of conversation to the editing to publishing the podcast and writing up the web script and putting it on social media. There are so many hands in this, specifically with Dave Machuda, our editor, and Sarah Smith, our executive producer, that make this what it is. And doing that Monday through Friday on top of our daily reporting was a lot of work, but I'm I'm really glad that we did it. And even though we're now back to more of a normal format of recording once a week, I mean, going into that really did fundamentally change the format of this podcast, I think, for the better. You know, I'm going to end it with this. I, I, I didn't listen to a lot of podcasts before we started making a podcast, and now I've become a podcast addict where I go for dog walks or runs, and I don't listen to music anymore. I listen to podcasts. I listen to comedy. I listen to history. I listen to other news podcasts. Um, 
but I, I listen to ours, and I know that might seem a bit narcissistic to listen to your own, <laughs> but it's it's really interesting to consume, to listen to the end product, and I and I enjoy listening to to Jenna when we have her on. I enjoy Jason Calvi's contributions so much. We've had guests on like Ben Handelman, Tom Kamenick from uh, from the uh, Transparency Project, Wisconsin Transparency Project, was a delight to have on recently. So it's fun to kind of step back and stop being the interviewer and listen as the consumer too. It's been a, a, a joy to be a part of this podcast, Amanda, and uh, and I look forward to uh, to you bringing home that award for us. If you have a topic you want us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, you can always send us an email. Please send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com. As always, we want to thank the people who make this podcast possible, from producer Pete to our extraordinary editor, Dave Machuda, and editor Suzanne Barthel, as well as executive producer Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson for Amanda St. Hilaire. We'll be back again next week.